So Esther chapter 7, actually beginning in the last verse of chapter 6. So 6.14 through the end of 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the, pa- from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. So at the end of this chapter, Haman is dead. The villain is gone. And this happens at breakneck speed. You blink and you miss how we even got to this point. Remember, not even 24 hours previously, Haman is pretty much the most honored man in the kingdom. This is before Mordecai is paraded around. After embarrassingly ushering Mordecai through the city, while Mordecai is wearing the king's robes and riding the king's horse, and then returns to his house to mourn, the, king, the king's eunuchs hurriedly fetch Haman. They bring him to this private feast that Esther has prepared for no one but him and the king. The king then asks for a third time now what Esther's request is, vowing again to fulfill anything that she asks. Esther, Esther now has to walk a very thin line. She first, she has to accuse Haman, who is still favored by the king, remember, but it's even more delicate that she has the task of not incriminating the king himself. Because remember, the king actually gave his seal of approval to this genocidal decree, gave full approval to it. She has to incite the wrath of the king, but she has to make sure it's pointed in the correct direction to not sound accusatory herself to the king, but to point his wrath towards Haman. So she begins her reply by using the same kind of wish request formula that Xerxes puts forth with the question. She forms her answer in the exact same way that he put forth the question in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, it says, The king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Then in verse 3, Esther answered, 
O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. So she answers in the same way that the king asked the question, a smart negotiating tactic. Then she and her people, she is emphasizing that she and her people are one and the same. Their destinies are intertwined. We've discussed this in previous weeks. She has become a member of God's people explicitly now. So their destiny is her destiny. Then she uses the exact words of the edict. So back in chapter 3, verse 13, which is, let's see, yep. Chapter 3, verses, verse 13, it give, we given the, the words of the edict. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. And then over in verse 4 of chapter 7, we have Esther pretty much quoting the decree. It says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Using the exact same words of the edict, all while not yet implicating Haman or the king. She has not implicated either one of them in the crime. Who Haman, remember, sold them, and the king sold them basically for 10,000 talents of silver, an enormous sum. She employs the exact same tactic that was used by Nathan whenever he confronted David, or like we saw last week in Ben's sermon, the unnamed prophet in 1 Kings 20 when he confronts King Ahab. They come before them, they present the situation first to arouse their wrath before pointing the finger back at them. So Esther must first arouse the king's indignation. It works, and the king demands that Esther tell him who who has done this immediately. Apparently, uh, I'm going to take commentary's words on this because like I've told you before, I don't speak Hebrew, but apparently it's very difficult to capture in English how furious the king actually is here. And it's also uh, kind of difficult in English to capture the emotion in Esther's reply. So in verses 5 and 6, in English we have, King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And so those those two quotations are a bit uh, difficult to to translate the emotion and the, the furor there that's in English. But it's there in the Hebrew. They're very explosive in Hebrew, and Haman has now been openly accused very aggressively. And so, moving on, what has unfolded is is too much for Xerxes. They're enjoying this feast, everything is great, and now one of his his most trusted advisors has been accused of a murderous plot against the queen and her people. He is so overcome that he has to leave the banquet hall and go into the garden. So he's overcome with emotion, but Xerxes now, he faces a very tough dilemma too. Remember, Haman is still second in command in the empire. And he has has to ask himself these questions. Can he punish Haman for something that he himself has already approved? And remember, this is Persia. Laws are irrevocable laws here. Could he actually rescind this? And at this point, he's probably not planning on executing Haman immediately, when he left the garden to return to them. But his dilemma is soon going to be resolved by Haman's next foolish action. So Haman knows the king is furious, obviously. But Haman also knows that Xerxes never really makes his own decisions. We've observed this throughout the rest of the book. He always 
looks to the advice of someone else really to make decisions. So Haman turns his attention to Queen Esther to plead his life before her, and maybe she can convince the king to be merciful to him. But you see, Haman is, is he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here because we have some from extra-biblical sources that protocol in the Persian Empire was that no one, no man, was to be left alone with a member of the king's harem, unless you were a eunuch for obvious reasons. But no man that was not a eunuch was not supposed to be left alone with a member of the king's harem. And this is the queen. This is not just some random concubine. This is the queen, and Haman is left alone with her. But, but Haman couldn't actually follow the king because that was likely to provoke the wrath even more, to stoke the flames there. He also couldn't run out of the banquet hall because that would you know, imply guilt. He would look guilty if he ran away, and the king would likely just send people to grab him. So he's trapped here. Then he does another stupid thing because there was another rule that even in the presence of the king that a man was not to approach a member of the king's harem within seven steps of the woman. And again, this is the queen, not just some random concubine. So it was absolutely unthinkable that Haman would fall on the couch where Esther was sitting. And then in this exact moment, just happens to be when Xerxes walks back into the room again. Xerxes' quandary has now been resolved. It's probably unlikely that Haman was actually trying to assault Esther, but that's how Xerxes interprets it, and that's all that matters. Haman has now successfully offended both the king and the queen in extremely dramatic ways. So what shall be done to him? And then we have another random eunuch just that is now in the room. And he mentions that there are some convenient gallows just kind of down the street that have been prepared. And Xerxes goes, well, he might have asked, who, who were they originally for? Why are these gallows here? And the eunuch, these, these gallows were prepared for Mordecai, the, the man whom the day before the king delighted to honor. And Xerxes, Haman has prepared those for him. Great. Hang on those. And so that's what happens. Haman is executed on these gallows that he has built for Mordecai. And we actually don't really have a good word in English to translate the exact methods of execution that were practiced in ancient Persia. I've talked about this a little bit before. Gallows in English really implies, you know, death by asphyxiation, by a rope placed around the neck. But the Persian gallows are really more like big giant stakes, just a big wooden stake, and they would impale the people on these. And so this is where Haman is hung, 75 feet high, impaled on the gallows that he has built. And then at the end of the chapter, almost as a footnote, we are told that the wrath of the king abated. So a couple of, couple of points, points here um, in this chapter. The first one I was going to make is kind of a disconnected from the other two, but I thought it was, was interesting nevertheless. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he makes an interesting observation about how much of a groveling, cowardly buffoon Haman has become by this chapter. This is Matthew Henry's quote, commenting on this passage. How mean Haman looks when he stands up first and then falls down at Esther's feet to beg she would save his life and take all he had. Those that are most haughty, insolent, and imperious when they are in power and prosperity are commonly the most abject and poor-spirited when the will turns upon them. Cowards, they say, are most cruel, and the consciousness of their cruelty makes them more cowardly. 
How great Esther looks, who of late has been neglected and doomed to the slaughter. Now her sworn enemy owns that he lies at her mercy and begs his life at her hand. Thus did God regard the low estate of his handmaiden and scatter the proud imaginations of their hearts. Quoting Mary's Magnificat from Luke 1. Compare this with that promise made to the Philadelphian church in Revelation 3. I'm going to read that real quick. Revelation 3, uh, mainly verses 8 and 9, but I'll start at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is a promise made to the church of Philadelphia by Jesus Christ himself. The day is coming when those that hate and persecute God's chosen ones would gladly be beholden to them. That's to end Matthew Henry's quote. This is the great hope of the Christian. We are promised that every knee shall bow to Jesus. Some will bow as sons, as I hope everyone in this room will. But some will bow as Haman did, and it will be too late. No matter how much we are shamed, verbally assaulted, or even beaten, God has promised us that we are on the winning side. We can be assured of that. And that's the end of that point. The next point... I was going to bring up is that Esther then pleads for her nation. As we have pointed out previously, Esther has begun to identify with her people, God's people. But up until this point in this chapter, she has done so privately. She has exclaimed that she would, if she perishes, she perishes with to Mordecai um, and maybe even to some of the women in there, but it's all been in private. As far as we can tell, No one in the court, no one in the public sphere really knows that she's a Jew. But now, like a flash of lightning out of nowhere, Esther claims to be a Jew in front of the king and then the man who wants to kill all the Jews. All so that the king would not destroy her nation. This is what has provoked her forward. Haman, destined to be destroyed with his people, the Amalekites, lest he repent, now fulfills his destiny as well. Esther was prepared to perish with her people. But that's not the way the story turns out. Esther shares in the deliverance of her people, and she's spared with them. She pled for her nation. In the same way, Christ pleads for the church right now, making intercession forever with us. The new nation of God, the new Israel of God, the church, has the full benefits of eternal life with Christ. And because he lives, we live. Esther lived because her people lived. And because Christ lived, we live. Identification with the covenant people of God, having the seal of the Holy Spirit, is eternally vital. And those who live outside of Christ are numbered among the people who God has already condemned to death, just like Haman. They are forever going to be the objects of his holy wrath. And this is why the gospel is so, so important. And that brings me to my final point, the segue to this, the gospel according to Esther. The Gospel according to Esther. In the last part of the last verse, we get that the wrath of the king was abated. A footnote at the end of the chapter. 
So here's a question. Why first was the wrath of the king stirred up? There's an answer. The king had been grossly offended. There was a murderer in his court. And this very same murderer was now trying to sexually assault the king's wife. He had been offended. Another question, to whom was the wrath of the king directed? Easy answer, the aforementioned vile evildoer. And the last question, how was the wrath of the king abated? The guilty party had been executed, crushed for his own iniquities. So I've asked your forgiveness before for making uh, comparisons between Xerxes and God the Father, but I'm going to do it again. And so I'm going to ask you, can you see the gospel presented here? In Deuteronomy chapter 21, and then again, Paul quoting this in Galatians chapter 3, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. Haman was impaled on a tree literally of his own making. Christ was hanged on a tree of his own making too. By him were all things created, right? So Jesus even created the tree from which the wood was hewn on the cross. Haman was the object of the king's wrath. Christ was the object, is the object of the Father's wrath, was the object of the Father's wrath. But that's where the comparison ends. The difference is Haman no doubt carried to that, he was carried to that cursed tree kicking and screaming, begging for forgiveness and mercy from the one person who could grant it. And he deserved exactly what he got. That's justice. Deserving, getting what you deserve is justice. Christ, on the other hand, went willingly to the cross, not kicking and screaming, carrying it himself. He had all the power of the universe to avoid the agonizing death that he endured. He could have called angels down to bring him down. He could have came down from himself. But it was the Father's will to crush him, and Jesus Christ came to do the Father's will. The wrath of the king had to be abated. The wrath of our creator had to be abated. And this is still justice. For God is a righteous God. He is a holy God. It's more than justice, though. It's grace. It's mercy. God is a holy God. He is a God that is totally other, a God that is totally separate from ourselves. And for his wrath to be abated, there had to be a perfect sacrifice. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Don't let anyone tell you different. The church today is so confused about what the gospel actually is. There's so many things that are gospel issues, but here is the gospel. God is holy. We are sinful. That's the starting point. We are forever separated from this holy God, and his wrath is directed towards us unless unless there is a perfect sacrifice. A completely unblemished Passover lamb, someone that is fully God and fully man to be offered up to abate the wrath of the king. And Jesus Christ is that sacrifice. We all know that here. It's good to be reminded of it, though. He is our sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our substitute. He was hung on that tree for the express purpose of satisfying God's righteous wrath by bearing God's curse against lawbreakers. Because of his blood, and even more importantly, because he bore the full brunt of the wrath of God, we are made clean. Sins completely cast away and reconciled to the king. The king's wrath is no more directed towards us. This is the great and good news, brothers and sisters. But make no mistake, if not for the grace of God, lest we be puffed up in our pride, we are just like Haman. Sure, we maybe never planned a genocide, thank the Lord, 
But Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Sure, maybe we've never attempted to rape someone like Haman was perceived to be. But Jesus says, lusting after a woman is committing adultery in the heart. We have a heart problem, whether we're murderers or adulterers. We tend to think of ourselves mostly as good, as good people. And as a consequence, we tend to read ourselves into the heroes of the biblical stories. We are the Moseses, the Joshuas, the Phineases. I love that story too, Hal, by the way. We're the Phineases, the Moses, Joshuas, the Pauls, the Peters, the Peters after Pentecost. (laughs) But without Christ, we are the Hamans. Murderers, sexually immoral, longing for just a little more honor that we don't actually deserve. But praise be to God that we have been cleansed for our unrighteousness. That's not us. Our righteousness is wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. But if you're not washed in the blood of Jesus, you are in a terrifying position because you, like Haman, will bear the full brunt of the wrath of God. And it will crush you for eternity, crushing you always. But the good news is that the gospel is free for everyone, not just the Jews. You only have to respond in repentance and faith. So why not? Does pride stand in the way like Haman? Is your life good just the way it is? Beware, because Haman had everything he could possibly desire just 24 hours previous to this. 24 hours before this, Haman was on top of the world. So life can turn very quickly. Now is the time for salvation. You may not have tomorrow. But on Jesus' other hand, addressing brothers and sisters now, if you are a member of the kingdom, a son of the Most High, you have someone that is infinitely better than Esther pleading on your behalf like Haman was begging her to. You owe it to him to devote your heart fully to the things of God. And so on this day, brothers and sisters, let us put off the things of this world and have our conversation be blessed by God. We are on his house. We're in his house on his day to worship him. And so let's give thanks to Jesus that the wrath of the king has been abated. That's all I have for today.